We are, we're in 1 Samuel, and we've come to a, a beautiful part of the story today. Uh, <coughs> it's a beautiful part of the story. It's really the most beautiful part of anyone's story, is that we've come to the point in the story uh, where Israel is all done. They have run out uh, the promises of Baal and Ashtaroth, and all the promises of the world and the culture around them to the end, and it did not turn out the way they hoped. And now um, they are in the beautiful state of brokenness, and they are ready for real repentance. And so now uh, let's read about that together uh, as we read from First Samuel chapter 2. Would you please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? This is First Samuel uh, chapter 7. I'm going to start at verse 2 through 17. And now from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them uh, as far as below Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Until now the Lord has helped us. And so the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and to Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all those places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how beautiful it is to us, Lord. It tells us such difficult things. Lord, but we know 
in and through it, you prove yourself to be good and trustworthy and right, and you show yourself to us to be beautiful, and you show that you are working to make us beautiful. So we pray that we would see that. We pray that you would help us to see the beauty of Christ in these pages as we study them together, and that you would show us how wonderful you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Like I said, uh, this, is a, this is a beautiful story. When you read it from beginning to end, it's a beautiful story um, because it's a story of repentance and deliverance by God. Uh, but before we really get into it, before to understand really what's going on here, to understand what's happening, to understand what it is that the, that the Israelites are repenting from, the magnitude of all that. I think we all often, we think, you know, when we think about, or you hear that word, you hear what Samuel's called to the Israelites to, to put away the foreign gods from you. You kind of get this picture, in my mind at least, of the Israelites kind of like, you know, dejected, take going, to the, going back home to the, to, the, to the mantle above the fireplace and grabbing some statues and putting them in a box and putting it in the attic. And that's really what they, but that, that is all of putting the foreign gods away. But it was really, it was a much bigger, much harder thing than that. And to understand what it is that was happening, I got to back it up and give you some background in Canaanite religion 101. Has anybody ever been in a massive thunderstorm? I mean like a legit thunderstorm, not a Southern California thunderstorm. I mean like, like a real, I, I was driving a U-Haul trailer once through Oklahoma and a thunderstorm rolled in. It was right around the time that that movie Twister came out and I was so afraid that we stopped the truck and like ran into a bar really for, for shelter. Everyone laughed at me because there, it wasn't really that dangerous to them, I guess. But the, the thunder wasn't like off in the distance. It was lightning all around us and thunder that was so loud, it was absolutely terrifying. I got closer than that. Actually, on our, our last trip to Mount Whitney, as we were climbing down, we ended up staying too long at the top of the mountain uh, and a thunderstorm rolled in. Some of you who were there with us, you remember this. And that was, I, wasn't, I had a U-Haul truck to hide in, no freeway overpass, no bar to jump in. We were on the mountain, nothing but rock around us. It started to rain, it started to hail, and then lightning bolts started to clack off all around us. And the thunder was right there in our ears like freight trains rolling through the valley. It was terrifying. And that thunderstorm, that kind of terror... That kind of power in nature is what the foreign gods are that's being talked about in this passage. That is Baal. Baal is the storm god. He is the power over all of nature as they experienced it. And so what that meant was as the power of the storm god, Baal was able to create rain. Rain was needed for harvest. Harvest was needed for crops. Crops were needed for prosperity and wealth. So serving Baal meant wealth. And Ashtaroth is really plural. There were three goddesses that were the consorts or the sacred prostitutes of Baal. 
And they were responsible. They were, over, they were the, the goddesses of both sex and war because you need a lot of babies to make big armies. And so Ashtaroth was over those things. And uh, the kicker to put it all together is this, that the Canaanites believed uh, that the land regained its fertility every year, every raining season, because of the annual mating between Baal and the Ashtoreths. And so it was only natural that Canaanite religious practice emulated the activity of the gods. And so really, Canaanite worship was all about doing what Baal and Anath and the Ashtoreth did in their worship services. So, if you wanted, putting that all together, look, if you wanted economic security, if you wanted to be safe from raiders that would come in and steal your crops and take your family and your daughters away, if you wanted to honor the gods and at the same time enjoy this crazy sexual freedom, then you had to put Baal and Ashtoreth first, which is really what worship, which really what worship is. It's what you put first, what you hold over and above any other thing. And here, so here's the point. I mean, we don't even see that. I think that's kind of funny. But, but the reality of it was, the reality of it was when Samuel says, put the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth away, he is not saying, take your little statues down from the mantle and put them in a box and put them in the attic. He's not even just saying, trust God with the desires of your heart. He's saying, he's saying all the entire culture that surrounds you is pressing in on you with this external pressure, telling you what you have to do if you want to be safe and secure and have wealth and have power and have sex and have love and have romance. And if you don't do that, you're not going to be okay. And instead, what, 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 so what Samuel is telling him, oh, these people, the Israelites, is kind of the same thing that we face. He's saying to repent from all of that, everything that you believe, everything that everyone is telling you is true about happiness and security and peace, to not believe that and instead trust God to order your life, trust God to provide you with the desires of your heart. And we can relate to that. We all have those same kind of pressures. That is a scary thing. It's a hard thing to do. Real repentance hits a point when it gets scary and difficult. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. It's something that we cannot pull off without the power of the Spirit. Uh, Without the power of God, Paul says uh, that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Without that, we wouldn't be able to repent. And God's, the good news is this, though, that God's good pleasure is to bless us. God's good pleasure is to grow us up into something beautiful. And to do that, he brings us to the place of brokenness when we can finally stop looking sideways at what everybody else is telling us is going to make us okay and instead look up to God and God alone and trust him in it. And we do that. When we do that, God comes through in power. 
He properly orders our lives, orders all the good things in a way that honors him. And then he also lets us enjoy those things to the fullest in the way they were meant to be enjoyed. And those are both super important things. So today, this, this story of the Israelites coming to repentance uh, and then God delivering them, we're going to look at that. We're going to get real about real repentance, why it's really hard, but also why it's really beautiful. And so the big idea is this. big idea is that real repentance goes all in as God goes all out to make us beautiful. Amen? Real repentance goes all in as God goes all out to make us beautiful. Let's look at that first part. First, real repentance goes all in. Look at verse, look at verse 3 again. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. That's where Samuel says here that repentance goes all in. And he says, return to the Lord with all your heart. Now, I'm preaching this now. I'm a saying this as a guy, I'm hypersensitive to how complex and emotionally charged and how difficult repentance can be and how plaguing it can be when you feel that sin is sticking to you Uh, or you feel like you're clinging to sin, you can't let go of it. There's a it's such a gnarly thing. I mean, just, as a, as a, just as, a, as a pastor who knows a lot of your stories, who, who is counseling people, as a friend who uh, is, is suffering with people through this, and just honestly, just as a guy who does a whole lot of repenting, amen, Nisa? Uh, I, I am hyper aware of how deep sin Runs and how uh, how deep sin needs to be done in a biblical uh, dealt with and repentance at a deep deep level really needs to be done in a biblical counseling center or a biblical counseling situation. But we can talk about big picture stuff in the in the text or in the course of a sermon. So, with that in mind, when we look at repentance. There's like four parts of repentance that we can look at, and each one gets progressively harder as we, as we walk down the aisle. The first, the first is just to hear it, just to hear about the sin in your life, and that's no small feat. A lot of people just stop right there and aren't able to get over that hurdle. They cannot listen to counsel people telling them that there's sin in their lives. It's just that's too much, and they don't, they're not even able to hear it. The second is the next step is to own it, which is to say, yes, this is true about me. The next one that's even progressively harder than that is to confess it, which is really to say along with God, yes, I agree that this is sin. And then the fourth one, the fourth step is really the hardest one and the last one. And that's what Samuel says here at at verse three, what... um, when he says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. It's so hard because that's the point, that's the part in repentance when God 
calls us to put some space, to put distance between us and the counterfeit gods that we become addicted to. That's the point when we move from saying, yes, this is sin, to saying, yes, this is sin, and this is destructive, and I desperately need your help to pull me out of this. And that's where the Israelites are here today. It's hard, though. It, it feels like, and it can feel like, I mean, it's the part of repentance that sometimes feels like your heart's being pulled out through your chest. It's a part of repentance that can feel like you're being crucified, which is why Jesus called it often picking up your own cross, the suffering from it. And so in and of itself, it's really hard, but there are some things that we can do that make it even harder than it is. I'm going to say four things that can make it even harder than it is. The first one, and the most, I think the, one, the most devastating one that makes repentance even harder than it is, is thinking that God is mad at you. For us as Christians, we hyperload our sin up to believe, when we believe that when we sin, God is now angry or mad at us, and that makes repentance way harder than it needs to be, or way harder than it is, because God is not mad at us. The other thing that can make sin or make repentance really hard is being really mad at God. We can be really mad at God when we think that what God is calling to repent or calling us to repent from is somehow unfair or that it's somehow some sort of punishment that God's laying out on us. And man, it can feel like that at times. The emotional load of it can totally feel like God is calling us to something that is super unfair. Um... And so we can get mad at God and begin questioning whether or not he's really good, whether or not he really has our, our best interests in mind. Uh, another thing, this one's going to sting a little, stings me a little anyways as I was thinking about it today, is that we can be not convinced that honoring God is better than continuing in our sin. And I'm not talking about unbelievers there. I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about me. To be unconvinced, it's possible for us as Christians, even though we know all about what God has done for us, the salvation that we receive, God's goodness pouring out to us in Christ, the Holy Spirit that we've received by his power, the goodness of righteousness, the blessing of obedience. Even though we know all those things, we can still question in our minds whether it's a better bet for us to honor God in those things or to continue in sin, and that can make it really hard. And the last thing that make it harder is is to, is to start believing that it's impossible. You can get so entrenched in sin and sin can become such a, a, we can get so wrapped up in it. And the New Testament talks about that, about Christians that get so wrapped up and blinded by sin that it begins to feel like there's just no way you're ever going to be able to get out of it. You know? 
You ever felt like that? I've felt like that. And I'm not saying by that, I'm not saying just striving and finding perfection in it, but just the Bible is saying, the Bible tells us, Romans 6 tells us, a lot of times that's despair and the devil trying to trick us. There's this, there's this Navy, there's this ex-Navy SEAL who has this training program and, for executives and what he does is he brings them in and he tells them to do as many pull-ups as they can and if they're in good shape, they'll bust out three or five pull-ups and then over the course of the next couple hours, he works with them and they bust out another 30 or 40 pull-ups and that's his introductory class to show them that they really can do a lot more than they think they can. It's just that their fear or their failure or what, they're, what, they, what they close themselves off to that limits them and, and so a lot of what God does with us in, our, in, in repentance and working with us is showing us who we really are in Christ, that we're a, we really have that power in us that he is working in and through us, that we're able to do more than we think we can. Not perfection by any means. But it's not, we are not allowed to think it's impossible because that's doubting the power of God. Now look, let's get, I want to get real practical for just a minute and talk about what it looks like in real life to put space between us and our idols. It, it means, a first. I think, the, well, the first thing it means is that repentance is a whole lot more about looking to God than I think it is about looking away from sin. Um, there's a principle, if you have a soapy glass and you need to get the soap out of the glass, the easiest way is to put it under the sink and fill it up with water and the soap comes up to the surface and goes out around the side. It's kind of the same way. Repentance is, is two things. It's turning from sin, but turning to God. And as Christians, our job is to really focus on the turning to God part more. It also means getting help, getting accountability, and confessing sin, and having someone that's there to help you and encourage you. And it also means getting distance from the temptation. And sometimes that can be the really hard part. Because it means taking the next reasonable, necessary step to distance yourself from where the temptation occurs, putting up really wise and safe boundaries. And that's the hard part, I think. That's the hard part for me, anyways, to do that because honestly, truth, deep truth, if you're, if you're struggling with a, a habitual pattern of sin, you probably already know what it is that you need to do to separate yourself from it, but it probably seems really impractical. Like it's going to cost too much money or be too inconvenient or maybe cost you some time at work or cost you something that you want. And honestly, in my experience, that is built into the design of repentance by God. It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a jump factor in it. There's a certain sense where he wants us to trust him and to make that little leap of faith that he's going to take care of us. And when we do it, when we do and we jump and we come through to the other side, um, it's all part of learning how to run with God. And running with God is totally worth it, learning how to do that. Now, let me close this little section off again by saying I get it. Repentance is hard and scary and there's so much guilt and shame in the Christian life surrounding it. And so we need to remember that we do this 
all of this from a position of salvation. We have our salvation in Christ. And when God calls us to repent, he's calling us uh, not to please him or earn favor with him, but he's calling us into deeper levels of life and deeper levels of sanctification with him, which is for our blessing and for our good, okay? Got that? Everybody got that? Okay. So, real repentance goes all in and does what it needs to do to separate its ourselves from the temptation. Uh, but it's not something that God is calling us to do on our own. He's constantly working in the background, going all out to deliver us. And that's the second part. God goes all out. Do you remember what happened in chapter 4? When Brian preached on that the other day, the Israelites went out to battle with the Ark of the Covenants and lost in the battle. The Ark of the Covenant was taken and Israel was brutally defeated. They basically, they ran out in all of their bravado and, and uh, so sure of themselves and they used the Ark of the Covenant like a religious magic trick and they were brutally defeated. But now this chapter is really meant to, to is contrasts that. There's a whole new Israel now that they've been brought into the state of brokenness and they are, uh, they are brought into a state of, of brokenness and real repentance. And they are no longer dabbling in religious magic, but they are now walking by faith. They've been driven to desperation, to a real repentance, to where they've really got no other option but to trust in God and this is what, this is a sentence that, this is the best sentence I read all week in studying this passage from a guy named Ralph, Ralph Davis. He says this about desperation. He says, desperation, however, is never in trouble when it rests on the all-powerful God. It, desperation is never in trouble when it rests in the all-powerful God. We find that is the place of strength. So let's look at what happens Look at what happens when Israel repents from verses 10 through 14. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. (coughs) And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth And then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Until now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines, and there was peace also between the Israel and the Amorites. What just happened? So Israel repents, right? And pretty much the first thing that happens is God comes through and gives them just about everything that they were trying to get on their own, minus the bravado and self-power and sin. Listen to the story, what just happened. The Philistines attack. Israel repents and first thing that happens is Philistines attack. Hint. Sometimes you repent and the story gets worse for a minute. God lets it get worse for a hot minute to help build our faith on that as well. And then 
the Israelites, instead of relying on their own power, what do they do? They plead to Samuel to pray to the Lord for them. And then God thunders against the Philistines. Remember, remember who Baal is? The storm god, the thunder god. And he throws them into a deep state of confusion with thunder. I'm thinking that they're confused because they're thinking, why is Baal attacking us? Whatever it is, God is showing himself more powerful than Baal and he scatters them into confusions. The Israelites don't do anything except follow after them and they pursue them all the way down the road. Uh, and out of that, what do they get? Well, what did they want? What did the Israelites really want before? What does everybody want? They wanted a lasting peace. They wanted prosperity. But they also wanted to be like the nations. They wanted to feel powerful in and of themselves and be, you know, the, the, the strongest, scariest warrior on the block. Uh, and what happened? The outcome in this battle that God won for them once they had trusted themselves in the Lord, what they really wanted, God provided. He gave them lasting peace. The Philistines leave them alone for the rest of Samuel's rule. They're subdued. No more raiders coming into their territory. They have peace and security. He gets, gives them prosperity. The cities that they lost at the first battle where the ark was taken are all restored to them. It looks like maybe even some of the Philistine cities were given over to them as well. They have prosperity. The only thing they don't have is the bravado, the aggression, the personal power, everything that they were trying to get in chapter 4. But now what happens is God has given them those things to enjoy, but in good order. And so, you know, some people time, sometimes they get their impression that we repent. What that means is that God just wants us to give up everything good in life and we're just supposed to suffer. But that's not... That's not true. All God wants is to bless us with giving us good order in our lives. He wants us to stop worshiping created things that don't have the power to give us what only He can. And when that happens, when He brings about that state of brokenness, brings us up into repentance, and then He brings, brings us into a right state with Him where we're trusting in God and leaning into Him, then then we can enjoy all those beautiful things that God has for us in their right measure, in right order. And God is glorified as the giver of those things. We're not leaning on them to provide us with things they can't lean, and we're able to really enjoy them the way God intended them to be enjoyed. It's win-win all around. And that's what God provided in his deliverance for his people. But there's another thing. And that's where it says, it says, and then Samuel took a stone and he called its name Ebenezer. Now, I mean, you know, who knows what Ebenezer means besides you seminary students? How many people have been singing Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing for 20 years and you sing that line and have no idea what you're talking about? <laughs> it's from this story. It's from this story. Ebenezer means stone of help. And so they chase the Philistines out of their territory. Everybody's like, yeah. You know, that elation you get when you just won the big game. 
Uh, they just got the final touchdown. Everybody's screaming. Everyone's elated. God has just totally come through for them. And they're, they're just shocked and amazed by what God has just done. And Samuel, being a prophet, knowing people's hearts, he takes this big stone and he sets it up as a memorial for people to remember. So stone of help means uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a call to look backwards all the way that God, all the things that God has done in the past and also the stone will be there as a reminder uh, to everyone. And that's the really important part about this. Listen, it's what he says next after he says, calls it Ebenezer. Then Samuel says, because until now the Lord has helped us. What he's saying is, up till that point, all of it, the Lord has helped us. He wants people to know, he wants the Israelites to know, he wants us to know that it's not just the battle where God has helped us, but it's everything that God has been doing over the ages for Israel that has been their help. And how do we know that? If you want, you can flip back to chapter four for a second and look at what it says in the very beginning. That first battle that the Israelites had with the Philistines where they lost the ark, they lost 34,000 men and they went into subjection. It says this, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, but the Philistines encamped at Effect. You know what he's doing? The author who's writing this story, he's implanting... It's not called Ebenezer yet. There's no stone there. But he wants real subtle, call everybody's attention so that when they get to the battle and the victory part, they'll be like, wait a minute, we've heard of Ebenezer before. And they'll read that battle and the loss and the hard providence of God that he let Israel go through. And you have to say to yourself, that's all part of up until now, God has been our help. What Samuel is saying, what God wants us to see, is that in all of that, God has always been our help. In the hard things that he put Israel through, in the hard things that he puts us through, all of it is God in his blessing and his mercy systematically removing like Jenga pieces all of our secondary helps, all of our little things that we lean on so that we get forced into the corner of desperation and we have to rely on the omnipotent power of God to come through for us. And in that, he delivers us, puts everything in right order and shows us that everything, God's hard providence, God's good providence, the hardships that we go through, And the blessings that God gives us are all part and parcel of God's always help to us. It is God's love and it is God's mercy. So that we can lean on grace alone and then in and through that God makes us beautiful. That's the last part, that God is making us beautiful. Look at one last section of scripture I want you to look at. There's verses 8 through 9. 
And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, for he may save us, so that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Listen, let's listen. I want to read that verse to you from Come Thou Fount. I think we're going to sing it in a minute, but let me read. Let me read that, <clears throat> that verse that talks about the Ebenezer. It says, it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. All the way to here by your help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger, he interposed his precious blood. So the Ebenezer, it looks backward on all of God's blessing and power to let us know that everything that God has been, God will be. So that we can look at that and look forward. The Israelites looking forward to the coming of the Messiah We're looking backward to Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and forward to the second coming. But it's really a picture about what Christ has done for us, this whole thing. It's a picture of Jesus and what he's done for us. There's two ways to think about repentance, and this story really speaks to both of them. And I was like wrestling with this all week until I realized, man, you just got to lay both of these out, right? And the first one is this. The first one is our... Is, our, is what our confessions call repentance unto life. That's repentance and faith coming into salvation, right? Um, the main point of the Old Testament and the main point of these stories that we read, and we need to keep this in our mind, is the story of Israel is, is um, whether or not Israel would be able to stay in the land based on their obedience to teach us a lesson. And over and over again, over 1,500 years of field research, the conclusive answer was Israel could not. Israel could not stay in the land based on their own obedience. They had to repent and cry out for the help of God. And that, this, this first picture then is what Jesus has done to save us from all the ways we try to save ourselves before we knew Christ. Samuel here has acted, Samuel's acted as a prophet in the past. He's here in this chapter, he's called a judge. And now we see him out in the open offering a lamb, acting as a priest. He's been doing some priest stuff along the way or wearing like priest clothing, but now he's actually engaged in offering the sacrifice of a priest. And so here we see Samuel as one, I think, of the two guys in all of Scripture who operates in all of the categories of prophet, of priest, and of judge, which is almost king, offering up a sacrifice for the people as he cries out to God. So look at the direction of the action that we see here. The people plead with Samuel to pray to God for their salvation. Samuel offers the sacrifice, cries out to God for the deliverance of his people, and this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus' sacrifice for us has won us life so that when his spirit, when God sends his spirit and applies by the power of the spirit salvation to us, we repent 
of what we used to trust in for our salvation and we instead we turn to Jesus and trust in him because we see it. And that is the foundation for the rest of our Christian life. The rest of our repentance, which is a continuing thing in the Christian life, is based on that reality. We are saved. Jesus has paid the penalty for us. We are adopted by God and so from this point forward, once we belong to Christ, it is not about salvation anymore. What it is about and what it becomes is about freedom and life and God bringing us into deeper communion with him and beautifying us, making us more like Jesus so that we can enjoy him and his gifts forever. And that's the second kind of repentance that we talk about. Repentance just doesn't end when we're justified or when we come to Jesus, when we're saved. It's a normal and it's a continuing part of the Christian life. And so this also shows us a picture of what Jesus is doing for us right now as high priest, praying to us for the Father, which tells us what? That whenever we get crushed you know I, I wish <laughs> we're next, next week we're going to go into the next chapter and you know what the Israelites are doing they're going right back into some, another form of idolatry man what they tried to do with the ark they're now going to try to do the same thing with a king and so what, is that, what that tells us is that this is a continual thing with, even in the Christian life this keeps going man I wish I could say you repent once when you're saved and that's it but Christian The Christian life is a life of continual repentance as God continually brings us to the end of ourself in this chapter as we go, I'm done, I give up, God save me, he comes through in power, full of peace, we're aligned with God, we're like, whatever you want is good with me and, and we're enjoying all of his gifts in good measure and then all of a sudden you start thinking, man, this isn't good enough (laughs) or I need that or whatever and we'd go back and do it again. So look, the Christian life, this is showing us a picture of of repentance and the continual cycle that we do. We get ourselves all jacked up in some form of sin, blubbering, ugly cry, crying out to God to save us. And then we're crying to Jesus. Jesus then takes our blubbering, ugly cry prayer, takes it to the Father and prays for us in power. And then God says, all of this is my mercy and blessing on my son or my daughter. I've been working him into this cohort, into this corner so that she will give up on these other things. And then he comes through in power and blesses us, reorders our lives so that we are able to then enjoy his gifts in a way that honors him uh, in right measure without offering and sacrificing good things up on the altar of our idols. We don't have to do that. We are content in what God has ordained for us and it is enough. And the result is God is glorified. And then we do it all over again. 
and that's okay. Through each one of these cycles, God is beautifying us a little bit. Through each one, he's blessing us. I know that can be hard to hear when you're in the middle of it. You know, that's why we need each other so much because sometimes we're not all in the same spot each, you know, every day. Sometimes we're in, we're in the repentance cycle. We're in the blessing and order cycle. And, you know, your best friend is in the dismay and despair cycle. And you need to just be able to encourage him to say, hey, man, this is, this is God's blessing for you. And then next week you switch places, right? Then you like fall out and you get all discouraged and your friend is in a good place or your, your, you know, your accountability partner is in a good place and they can encourage you with it and help you along the road. And this is how we all literally limp all the way down the road and into glory. That's what it's like. That's what repentance is all about. And it's hard, but it's beautiful because God is making us beautiful through it. Amen? So look, here's my encouragement. My encouragement to you is to trust him. Trust him. Seriously. I know some things maybe God's asking you to give up. You feel like it's tearing the soul right out of you, but it's not. It is not. You can't think that God is trying to mess you up and at the same time, believe that Jesus came and died for our sins. Those are two radically opposing thoughts. If God was that good to do that for us, then he's also good in what he's asking us to do. And we need to trust him in it, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, especially when it's scary. And so get help, get distance between yourself and the temptation and begin to fill yourself up with the beauty of God and rich disciplines of, and rhythms of prayer and devotion as he comes through for us in power. Amen? That's my encouragement. Okay, let's pray. Father, well, God, this is a rough subject to talk about. You know, I'm just so terrified all week even speak of it that you call, you really do call us you really call us to separate ourselves from sin. And Lord, we, we load that up so hard with so many things that make it harder, thinking that you're mad at us, that you're punishing us, that you're unfair. But really, it's you are calling us into, from faith to faith, from glory to glory, into deeper communion with you, into all of the beauty and wonder and light that you have for us as you grow us and give us a foretaste of what we are going to have with you forever. So Lord, help us to do that. Help us to trust you. Help us to not run to these dead things, but help us to run to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the full measure of life. In Jesus' name, amen.